0: Hello, please like and subscribe. I am delighted to be joined by the esteemed, the brilliant Professor Mariana Mazzucato, who has written yet another absolute corker, The Big Con, How the Consulting in the Industry Weakens Our Businesses, Infantilizes Our Governments, and Warps Our Economies. Mariana, for me, is a go-to person when I want to know about economics, about how the economy works. Always one of the most important reference points, I would say, of our time. Um, so no, no pressure there. This book is so important because I think it just really explains how modern capitalism works, how the economy, how, how it's evolved and changed, its relationship with government, the state, the market, all the rest of it, and because we hear so much about waste, about public waste, I think it's stripped of context and meaning. This book, I think, really shows what it actually all means. Um, yeah. Hi, Mariella. Sorry, <laughs> just feel there. Hi there. there. <laughs> Hi you. Um Let's just start. Consultants, consultancies. We hear yeah. it bandied around a lot. What the hell are we talking about? So first
1: of all, just the household names, you know, Deloitte, PwC, Erston Young, Bain, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group. There is about kind of six to 10 very large consulting companies. And what the book looks at is the industry and the underlying business model of the big consulting firm. So it's just important to say that, you know, lots of different types of people consult. You might have a head teacher, a nurse, a doctor, an academic consult based on their expertise in an area, you know, an oncologist might consult for another hospital that he or she doesn't work in. What we look at is an industry where there is this kind of irony that it's called consulting, but what they're actually consulting on is often areas that they actually don't really have any expertise because the business model is not actually based on that expertise. It's based on uh, helping risk averse uh, governments who are fearful of making any mistake and that have often also outsource so much of their capacity that they're actually addicted to having that capacity be consulted in. Um, And a business sector, which is often too cowardly to own up to its own decisions and prefer for some difficult decisions, whether it's downsizing, whether it's uh, maximizing shareholder value and engaging in massive share buyback schemes, whether it's M&A operations, to have those actually kind of rubber stamped by a consulting company. So we really call out all the different actors it's not really the big con in terms of blaming the consultants we're blaming the economy we're blaming governments we're blaming businesses that have stopped again owning their own decisions owning their own capacity and of course in a situation like the one we're in now where we have climate change where the ipcc report tell us you know every year that we have very few years left until the problem is Irreversible, where we have new pandemics coming our way, as the permafrost melts, more viruses uh, you know, will emerge. We have all sorts of other problems like the digital divide. You'll remember that during the lockdown, a lot of kids were locked in homes with very low um, you kind know, of digital capacity, so stopped accessing their human rights to education. All these problems I just mentioned, and I could go on and on, require capacity. They require public and private actors to work together in a collaborative way based on kind of expertise they're bringing to the table, but especially be able to collaborate as, you know, ambitiously as we did when we went to the moon and back. That was my previous book. We say that's now impossible. We actually no longer have that capacity. And it's been almost like an explicit willful decision, especially in governments. And we look mainly at the governments to not insource that uh, uh, investment in their own brains And we have then an industry that's benefiting from that in kind of a parasitic way with all sorts of conflicts of interest that arise from that.
0: So, I mean, how much has this industry expanded over the last few decades, or the last generation? Let's use just some random time frame. And, yeah, I yeah. mean, what's kind of powering it in that sense? Because you almost say it's like a vicious, a kind of vicious circle, this kind of positive feedback loop almost.
1: Yeah, well, currently the whole sector, and again, we're looking at the consulting industry, not kind of individuals here and there that are consulting, but those large companies that I just mentioned, it's about, about $900 billion uh, dollars worth of global uh, income every year but it's also expanded your your question is exactly the right one what's happened over the years in terms of the trajectory and what's interesting is that while there was an increase in spending on consultants during the kind of neoliberal governments for example under Thatcher spending on consulting services went from something like six million in 1979 to two uh, 246 million in 1990 so that's a massive increase what we look at is how You know, on the one hand, that's kind of predictable because you'd assume that governments that, in fact, don't really believe in the state and have, you know, had different types of backlash, whether it's austerity or other types of waves of diminishing, uh, not just the size, but the remit of government, that the the actual rise in recent years has increased even more during, for example, in the UK under New Labour. And the question is why? You know, why is it that under a New Labour government that, you know, was... Priding itself to actually believe in the state, unlike the Thatcher, uh, the Thatcherite, and kind of you know uh, uh, conservative uh, governments, why would why would consultants increase under that kind of government? And the answer is that if you believe that government has a role, but don't actually have kind of a view, a mission, a vision of what government is for, and you start believing that yes, government's important, but at best, what it's trying to do is emulate. Something that's happening in the private sector because we continue to believe that uh, you know, value is created in the private sector and at best governments are there to fix what economists call market failures. Then it's not surprising that then the wave of kind of private sector um, opening in areas, whether it's in health and education and transport, then actually opens up an opportunity for consultants to come in and bring in kind of metrics around cost-benefit analysis, net present value calculations. So again, New Labour was a government that believed in government, believed in the state, didn't think it should just get out of the way, like the Reaganites and the Thatcherites, but by not actually having, I would say, a view of what public purpose is and actually buying into the idea of new public management and public choice theory, which is like, yes, government, come in, but don't crowd out the private sector, then actually the fact that government was kind of expanding, but without a view of what it's for, and being asked to work around things like the private finance initiatives, which we know, um, you know, actually increased under Tony Blair, it actually opened the the way for many more consultants to enter government. And we also saw it in the United States under the Clinton uh, administration.
0: I think during the pandemic, that's when, for a lot of people, it really came just in yeah. a very notorious way to public view in a way that was very difficult to, to ignore. And I'm just wondering what that yeah. tells you, what the, what happened in the pandemic and just the kind of eye-watering salaries, the amount people were yeah. being spent. How can that put, how, you know, because these people think to themselves there has to be a kind of sign off. Things go through various committees, you know, but we're talking about absurd salaries. I mean, how, how could yeah. that ever be? get through any system. So I mean, what did sure. COVID tell us about all that? Well,
1: the reason that the subtitle is what it is, right? The big con, how the consulting industry has weakened businesses, infantilized our governments and um, and uh, uh, weakened, and, sorry, warped our economies, is that word infantilization actually came out of uh, the COVID period when a conservative Lord, his name is Lord Agnew, was looking at all the figures, just how much the UK government was spending on consultants, both under COVID, where um, the, uh, 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 sorry, under COVID, where we kind of brought in Deloitte, for example, to do the test and trace system. And they were actually earning something like $1 million a day to do something they didn't know how to do very well, in fact, failed miserably at it. Um, But also during uh, Brexit, where uh, in 2016, after Brexit, the consulting market grew by 7.5% to 7.3 billion a year. So that's four times faster than the UK economy. And he started saying, what is happening if we continue to do this, if we continue to outsource the capacity from government to consultants, we will end up infantilizing Whitehall. That was his phrase, infantilization of government. In other words, we're making government babies. Why? Because if government is no longer doing things and just outsourcing it, it won't be learning by doing. It literally won't learn. It won't grow up. It'll remain a toddler. (laughs) So it's really interesting that this came from a conservative Tory lord. Now, since then... Um, we've actually increased the amount of uh, uh, spending on consultants in the UK by 12%. So it hasn't fallen. His, you know, stark alarm bell, what are we doing? We're making government stupider. And then we end up, you know, blaming government for not knowing what it's doing. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And what's really interesting is what did we learn from COVID? So on the one hand, we learned that the vaccine rollout was actually very successful. It was something that, you know, all the different ministers also prided, themselves with, but if you remember well, that was completely uh, um, implemented, governed by the NHS through a distributed network of decentralized GP practices. Are we today, you know, investing more in that decentralized network of NHS GP practices? No, look at who's on the street striking. What else did we learn? That um, the outsourcing of the test and trace system to a consulting company that actually had never Worked with test and trace was not a good idea. It didn't work well. The uh, the parliamentary committee had a whole um, uh, the sorry the House of Commons did a um, investigation about it. And in quotes, they said that the test and trace uh, outsourced to Deloitte did not achieve its main objective, which was to help. Ah, uh, break the chain of COVID nineteen transmission and enable people to return to a more normal way of life. So, wow, that should have been a massive wake up call. Why did we do this outsourcing? One point, uh, sorry, one million dollars a day spent on Deloitte test and trace. Are we learning? Are we, you know, questioning that model? No, we have since also COVID increased again Mm. the amount of money that's being used on consultants. And by the way, our main point is not so much that it's a waste of money. I do believe it's a waste of money because that money should be in-sourced to actually train civil servants who can then also work with the private sector or whoever better. But one of our main or I'd say our key critique is that it's not accountable. This, you know, this is not a This is not good for democracy when we are voting in through a political process, uh, politicians who might have a vision or not, hopefully they do, about how to steer an economy, and then don't actually invest within government to actually develop those really important dynamic uh, public sector capabilities that are required to implement policy. Um, And that's not to say that we don't have smart people in government, but it is to say that if as soon as a civil servant makes a mistake, <laughs> they're on the front page of the Daily Mail, whereas say the venture capital community is allowed to brag about all the risks that you know they take. If, if, if we're not explicit, that these are difficult challenges that we have, then it's not surprising that there's so much risk averseness within government and that they fear failure. They fear that learning by doing that trial and error and error, which of course you need to have, you know, kind of in an explicit sandboxing kind of way to tackle the challenges that we have. Um, and so that's one side, right? That kind of risk averseness within government, which then they go to the consultants. But also the fact that the consulting industry, what it's bringing to the table, there's very little value added. I mean, if you look globally, there's been all sorts of different scandals. Whether it's in um, Australia, where six million dollars was used uh, by the government to bring in McKinsey to uh, do their climate strategy, and it, you know, cost them, you know, a lot of money that could have been again spent insourced into the government. In fact, they had a CSIRO organization. It's like a innovation organization which is in the public sector with lots of expertise on climate. They decided not to use that. It's not clear why. And they ended up uh, again using McKinsey which failed pretty miserably. In fact, there was all sorts of uh, reports on it because the model they, they used completely underestimated the growth of solar and wind energy consumption. So And so overestimated the costs of deployment of a sustainable mm-hmm. transition in, uh, in Australia and came up with kind of an absurd number of how much it was going to cost. And by the way, the other thing we say is that that's also not surprising that they're making the mistakes, not only because they don't have that expertise, but there's also deep conflicts of interest. So McKinsey, for example, has advised at least 43 of the 100 biggest polluters. So is it so surprising that some of their climate modeling is kind of, you know, overestimating the costs of a a green transition, which again is not to say they don't have some really bright people. McKinsey is full of bright people. That's another thing we talked about, this brain drain you know, from some of the best graduates in the world, from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford, Cambridge, you know, Manchester, and so on. Many young people are going into the consulting industry. And we question that. We say, why is it that it's also been such an attractor of human capital? Because mm-hmm. remember, we're not saying that the individuals working in these companies are in any way stupid. We're saying that the model of the consulting Mm. industry has you know it's it's a very problematic model because it's feeding off of a weak state with no interest in strengthening that state so it would be like a therapist who has someone in therapy for their entire life they're probably not a very good therapist there's no incentive to make government stronger Mm. because then you don't get that next contract there's very little development of the expertise that they're bringing to the table there's lots of copy and paste and kind of a some you know, very trendy PowerPoint kind of presentations they use no matter what uh, subject they're looking at, but also that conflict of interest in terms of lack of transparency of all the other kind of consulting agreements they have, which actually could be in conflict mm-hmm. with um, you know, some of the contracts. In South Africa, for example, they were consulting both for ESCOM, the state-owned energy company, and for the Treasury, which is supposed to be regulating ESCOM.
2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
0: So, I mean, you, you, you were talking about Thatcherism earlier, and obviously, what Thatcherism did is establish a political economic settlement which demonized, I suppose, the role of the state. Sitting um, in ideological terms, I mean, you could, you know, there's a big debate about how, how much this. You know, in, in other ways, the, the state expanded its role for various reasons, which were very much kind of contradictory reasons within Thatcherism. But um, it, it definitely demonized the role of the state and tried mm. to roll back the state. And yeah, I mean, you're right, you know, New Labour you, we could talk about what New Labour did, but they they, mm. they they tried to alter the Thatcherite settlement, but they still kind of worked within its parameters. They didn't overturn it. So I'm just wondering how much is this to do with, you know, four decades and over four, 1979 onwards, which is that the role that the state has to be rolled back. The state is bad and that you have to rely on the private sector because they will always know best. And that ideology helps permanently prop up this whole industry.
1: Yeah. I mean, as you know, from our previous conversations, this is what I've kind of dedicated all my recent books to. So from the entrepreneur. Yeah. (laughs) No, no. Thanks for that. So there's this myth, right? That value is created in business and, You might have some very right-wing ideologues saying that then there's no role for government. So we're not actually looking at that when we're looking at new labor kind of governments. We're looking at governments that actually say, no, there is a role for the state. But what is it there for? It's there to de-risk the private sector. Why? Because the private sector is taking on the risks. (laughs) Um, They are entrepreneurs. And so you need the public sector to de-risk that process, facilitate it, enable it, fix different market failures, redistribute the income. If you're on the left side of the political spectrum, you'll want that redistribution to be progressive and not regressive. But you'll see what I'm getting at, which is that we haven't actually had a kind of progressive center left, if you want, new theory of what the state is for beyond at best being a counter cyclical investor, right? That's the Keynesian view. And I actually think Keynes was misunderstood because if you read Keynes well, he was much more ambitious than just saying, you know, we should uh, uh, um, uh, have counter cyclical uh, finance. So you have that idea that we need counter cyclical. So you don't get recessions to go into depressions, which is what we used to have, by the way, up until World War Two, when we didn't have kind of Keynesian kind of economics, every 10 or so years, we had proper depressions before World War Two, people don't appreciate how important that point is, but it's not enough, right? So if you look at all the different investments that I look at in the entrepreneurial state, the book I wrote back in 2013, where I talk about every technology that is in this phone or iPhones was actually invested in by government, took the early stage, high risk capital intensive investments without those we wouldn't have the internet, GPS, touchscreen, Siri, that wasn't in a bust moment. It wasn't done for counter cyclical needs. It was done because actually there was a vision of, you know, for example, there was problems. The reason we have the internet is because the government, this was the U S government at the time, wanted the satellites to communicate And the Internet was a solution to that in the same way that the Navy wanted to know where the ships were and so invested in GPS technology that kind of what I call mission oriented problem solving investment. um, That has got us all these general purpose technologies, all the technologies in our iPhones that got us the green revolution. We don't actually have a proper theory for that. Um, And so it, it becomes a problem, right? Because then even with governments that believe in government and believe in the state and don't believe in the kind of just austerity cut back in government, if you don't have an understanding of what it means to have a what I call a mission-oriented government that is trying to catalyze the kinds of bottom-up solutions we need across society, to help us do the moonshots, not only literally in the space race, but also in all those different areas I talked about before, health, climate, digital, working alongside the private sector, but with a strong steering um, and having civil servants work with not just enabling the private sector, then we have a problem. And. It's not just kind of philosophy. This means that then if you don't have the view of the state as co-creating markets, co-creating value, and at best just fixing markets, then there's no actual incentive to invest within the brain of the civil service. The reason I set up the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose at UCL in London was precisely to kind of think, well, we need a new education. We need a new curriculum for civil servants that is actually about value creation. It's about purpose. It's about creative bureaucracies but also new metrics which hold the state accountable because this is not about some sort of normative rosy view of the state as though the state is always great. (laughs) You know, we know uh, uh, by what happens in the world, the state is often part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So it's not about saying the state is great. Let it do anything it wants. It's by having a theory of what the state is for. We should also end up, if you want, developing metrics around public value, public purpose. Think of the public value. Uh, tests that the BBC has, uh, in no way perfect. Sorry, my hair is going all over the place. Um, (laughs) In no way uh, perfect, but at least they have that. You'd be surprised how few public organizations, departments, for example, have anything like the BBC's public interest test or public value metric. Um, And that's really what I think progressive uh, parties should be developing to prove that they truly are progressive. A, to have a view of government that goes beyond market fixing. B, to actually make those investments within the public sector. So we have a dynamic, agile, flexible public sector that can work with others, but also hold itself accountable, right? Um, it's interesting when the BBC expanded into areas that were meant to be just for uh, the business sector, like soap operas and talk shows and not just documentaries and high quality news, they had that metric to hold themselves accountable. Hence, they made you know, soap operas about the working class, EastEnders, mm-hmm. instead of just the soap operas about the rich in the US or the ways that they've tried to, to bring women's soccer to our television screens, yeah. or the fight against fake news, at least the attempt, you know, versus Fox and so on. That, that means having kind of a rigorous accountability also within. It's not just about, you know, public money being thrown at problems. And I think that's where the future is, but that's exactly what's not being done and also why you end up with this vacuum within the civil service and within governments that when they do have these really difficult challenges, they haven't actually made those investments that are required in house. And mm. so also for that reason, become addicted to others coming in and helping them out.
0: Just finally then just to wrap up, I mean, do you, what because some might think, well, this is quite depressing because of <laughs> what the successive governments have done. They've hollowed out that capacity to source yeah. uh, the, you know, the kind of, that experience, that that knowledge, that memory, that institutional yeah. memory gone. Yeah. So how how can it be rebuilt? And do you see, I mean, look, Labour at the moment, I have to say I'm not Not a big Starmer fan, I have to say. But he talks about mission-oriented government, which some might say is a bit of a rip-off of your work. But maybe without (laughs) the substance, who knows? Well, I
1: I just had a workshop with his team recently just to make sure that we're all using the term in the same way. Because what missions have been... In fact, I conveniently have this. Look at this. This (laughs) I have it here because I was just working with some... uh, Here, can you see this? Missions are, you begin with a challenge. It's all empty here, right? You can fill in the blanks. A challenge (laughs) like climate change. The mission might be, uh, you know, net zero region, or if you're fighting inequality, you might say zero digital divide. The main thing is to get lots of different sectors working together. But then all these circles on the bottom is how do you then change all the tools government has, like procurement, grants, loans, to foster that bottom-up experimentation that kind of, you know, allows the mission to be accomplished. So that means rethinking all the tools, whether it's procurement, grants, loans, bailouts, that governments have, instead of just subsidies, instead of just helping particular sectors, whether it's life sciences or the creative industries, giving them money, how do we get lots of different sectors working together towards a problem? Because that's in fact what got us to the moon. We had nutrition, materials, electronics, software, working together to solve hundreds of homework problems that were required to be solved to get to the moon and back in a short amount of time. But government was in, you know, had the steering wheel. Um, Government had the vision. Um, It was at the time pretty top down in terms of the goal itself and today's missions that should be around, you know, sustainability, uh, inequality and so on. We need much more co-creation of the missions. But the interesting thing with the moonshot was that while government kind of directed and came up with the mission, it required like 400,000 people to work together, lots of different sectors. And the contracts that government devised were reflective of where they wanted to go as opposed to, again, the PFI schemes, which just kind of bring in the private sector and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. They even had, by the way, no excess profits clauses in the mm-hmm. NASA contracts to get to the moon. They had outcomes-oriented procurement. So what I've been you know, talking to the, the, the Starmer team about is that that's what mission-oriented thinking requires, a new social contract between public and private to work together symbiotically, not parasitically, towards a common goal, ideally reflective of the SDGs, the seventeen. Sustainable Development Goals that we've, you know, all signed up to. We're not getting there. You have, you know, the Secretary General of of the UN saying, "What's happening? We're close to 2030. We're nowhere even close." But to solve all those problems at a local level in a city, at a regional level, at a national level, it's really hard to do without government kind of owning up to the fact that what government is for in democratically elected societies is to help shape an economy to be more inclusive, more sustainable. We need lots of different actors, but it doesn't just happen on its own. You need to redesign those policies to create that intersectoral collaboration, bottom-up experimentation, but government needs to have capacity. It needs to have implementation capacity. It needs to have knowledge about these different areas, not because it needs to do everything on its own, but it really needs to catalyze that multiplier effect that Keynes did talk about, and unfortunately, that's what we've outsourced away.
0: Brilliant stuff. The Mariana Ma Mariana Tour de Force. There in full in full force. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Do, do honestly, this is so oh, there it is. The big con really does so eye-opening. I don't think people will look quite the same way at how our government or our economy works. Uh, when they read it. So arm yourself with this. Do get yourself a copy. Mm-hmm. That was, as ever, um, brilliant stuff. was so, so provocative, so much to think about. So thank you so much, Mariana. Well. Thank you, yeah. And pleasure. please like and subscribe. I'll see you all soon.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50